fig tree. You didn't know we had fig trees in church, did you? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Kruger. Um, I'm one of the pastors in training, or the pastor in training here in Kingsway. And it is a joy for me this morning to preach on this um, passage that Bob just read for us. Thank you for reading it for us, Bob. The Bible was not written with you in mind. Specifically, it was not written to improve the quality of your daily existence, and it was not to produce hope for material fruitfulness. It is not a spiritual handbook. It is not a guidebook where you go to determine the path of your life. And it is not a medicine cabinet where you go and open it and randomly pick whatever poison you need to fix your ailment. Unfortunately, this is often how we read the Bible. This is the lens through which we read the Bible. We are easily self-absorbed and selfish when we read the Bible. But when we want to know what the Bible is all about, we should read the Bible from a redemptive historical perspective. What do I mean when I say that? We should approach the Bible looking to discover on its pages how God has faithfully worked from times past through today to redeem a sinful world and a sinful people to Himself. You see, the Bible has a central theme. The Bible has a central theme that, like a scarlet thread, is woven all through 66 books of the Bible. It has a unified message that is vividly portrayed in all of the genres, whether we read poetry or wisdom or parables or prophecy. There's one story. It is the story of God and the redemption He has worked for us, His people. And so with that in mind, we need to read, when we come to any passage in God's Word, we need to read passages in the context of the entire Bible. You see, when we do that, we will not see our own good. We will not be looking at the Bible to see what can this Bible do for me today. But we will be looking at this Redeemer who through history have shown His redemptive work for us. And so when we read the Bible in context... It will help us. It will help us to interpret and understand difficult and challenging passages. And it will help us make sense of weird and strange passages. Case in point, this morning's passage. I'm sure some of you sitting there when Bob read it went like, Ooh, I wonder who's going to preach that. (laughs) Because standing alone, that passage is a strange passage. By itself, this passage does not make much sense to us. I remember 
I remember how often as a child I would look at this passage and think, I don't get this. But friends, when we read this passage in the context of redemptive history, we will see that this passage fits in like a puzzle piece fits into the picture of redemptive history. It fits in well there. It is not a standalone weird passage. It is a part of God's redemptive history plan for us through the ages. This passage, friend, is designed to warn us. It is designed to help us. And it is designed for our good. May God, through His Holy Spirit, help us to see him in this text this morning and to change us. Let us pray. Lord, we, we come to your word this morning needing you. I need you to help me to speak clearly and we all need you to help us hear what you have to say. So Lord, we come humbly before you today knowing that we need you and we are not going to rely on ourselves with this passage because we will butcher it. So Holy Spirit, come now please and help us and lead us to glorify you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we saw the backdrop of this story last week when Matthew started preaching in Mark chapter 11. And we saw Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And we see in verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so when I read that, I wonder... Why did Jesus go to the temple to look around? Because one thing I can say for sure is that Jesus was not on a sightseeing trip here. Jesus had a specific purpose. And the place that we can go to church to see his purpose in what is happening here is back to the Old Testament writer of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi prophesied about what was going down here when we read about Jesus' triumphant entry. And so we read in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. 
And so, friends, when we see in verse 11 that Jesus came to the temple to look around, he was not sightseeing. Jesus came to the temple to see the spiritual condition of the temple and those who worshipped or was supposed to worship there. Jesus came kind of, in a sense, sizing up the playing field for the battle that was ahead of him. Jesus came as a refiner and a purifier and a messenger of a new covenant. And so he came to the temple and he looked around the temple. And then it says it was late and Jesus went with his disciples to a town called Bethany, small town about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem to retreat for the night. And this brings us to the passage from this morning. It was upon their return the next day from Bethany to Jerusalem when the whole fig tree incident happened. Jesus, who was hungry, looked in the distance far off and see to see a fig tree full of leaves. And walking up to the tree to get some of the fruit, he found that there was no fruit on this fig tree. And as a result, he curses the fig tree saying, may no one ever eat from you again. And I want to go, he what? It says it right there in verse 13, it was not the season for figs. And so we're, we can be confused about why would Jesus curse this fig tree just for not having figs? This is the first time we've seen Jesus do a destructive miracle. We've seen him heal the blind. We've seen him heal the lepers. We've seen him drive out demons, but we have not seen him in this form being destructive in a sense. And so it's important for us to start looking at why was Jesus looking even for fruit on this tree? And the reason Jesus was looking for fruit on this tree is because this tree proclaimed to bear fruit. It proclaimed to bear fruit because it was having leaves on it. You see, a fig tree produces fruit first. And after a few weeks of Having fruit, it produces leaves. And so when a fig tree is seen that is in leaf, it is a natural thing to know that when I get to that fig tree, there will be figs on it. Now there is a stage when these figs are not ripe yet, but they are edible. And so when Jesus came to this tree full of leaves, But with no fruit, he cursed it. And we need to realize that this this tree that Jesus cursed was not cursed because it did not have fruit on it. It was cursed for being false. This tree proclaimed to have something that it did not. This tree said, I have fruit. And it did not have fruit. This tree proclaimed to be something that it was not, and hence it was judged. Now here's where we really, really need context, because that in itself can be strange. 
And so when we look at redemptive history, we don't see a lot of teaching on horticulture in redemptive history, do we? This tree was not some genetically deficient tree that Jesus needed to get rid of. This, friends, what we see here is prophetic symbolism. It's prophetic symbolism for his disciples who, was, who were with him, and it is prophetic symbolism for us. You see, the fruitless tree in this picture represented false Judaism. The cursing of the tree was a symbol of God's judgment that was on Israel and on its leaders. Jesus was proclaiming to the people of God that there is falsehood in your lives and because of that I will curse you. I will cut you off and you will wither and die. You see, they had a sense, they had a type of hypocrisy to them. They proclaimed by their external worship that they loved the Lord their God. But on closer inspection, it was not true. It was all external. It was all leaves. And when God, who could see in the heart, looked closer, there was no fruit. It was all empty religion. And by cursing the fig tree, Jesus was saying, I will curse empty religion in your lives. When we skip to verse 20, a couple of verses on, we see Peter's amazement when they walk up to the tree. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And I'm not sure if he was amazed or if he was scared, realizing that what Jesus said to this tree happened to this tree. But sandwiched in between that verse 20 And verse 14, where we also see the fig tree, are a couple of verses where we see another account of the purifier, as Malachi called him. We see the purifier going into the temple, which he, the previous day, went to look at. And he went into the temple and he upset everything. He turned over the tables. He turned over the chairs. He would not allow people with merchandise passage and he drove out everyone who was buying and selling proclaiming is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers And on an external level, when we take these two accounts, they seem to be disconnected. On the one hand, we have a tree. On the other hand, we have the temple. And Jesus is doing things that look weird if if we take it by itself to both the tree and the temple. But in reality, these two incidents are really closely, closely related. You see, like the tree, the temple and the temple rulers were false 
in their religion. This temple was an enormous place. It was, it was about the size of a 15-story building. And at this time, merely one week before a major Jewish festival, the eyes of all were upon Jerusalem and especially upon the temple as the center for religious activity. And although this building proclaimed by its grandeur to be a center for religious activity, a place where God dwelt, a place where people should come who want to serve God, all of this was false. It was a facade. It was not the house of prayer which it should have been. It became a marketplace and a den of robbers. Falsehood. Similarly, the temple rulers and the priests were prone to hypocrisy. They, all that they possessed was external ceremonial legalism. And Jesus went in there to look at this And Jesus went back as the purifier and drove them out. Similar to judging and cursing the tree, he cursed those false, the falsehood in his temple. You see, God will not be mocked. God will not endure empty ritualism and external ceremonialism. He looks for true worship. John 4 verse 23 tells us the type of worship that God requires. Worshippers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Israel was not such a people. And Jesus was proclaiming a curse on their false religion. Now church, this passage should be like an alarm going off here this morning for you and for me. Because when we read this passage and we see what the implication was to the Israelites we should ask ourselves, is this in any sense a picture of me? When Jesus sees the leaves in my life, when He sees the external ritual, the external religion that is there in my life, and He comes closer, is He going to find a tree like this with only leaves, or is He going to find fruit in my life? This is a question we need to ask, church. This is a question you and I need to honestly answer before God because it has serious implications. This is not a passage only written for those people. This is a passage written for you and for me for today also. And so you might, might ask, well, it depends on what fruit you're talking about, Josh. And so a good starting point, listen, starting point, 
maybe Galatians 5 and verse 22, where we can read the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Those are fruit that the Spirit will work in us if we submit our lives to His control. I'll read it backwards or you'll think it's a recitation. Self-control, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, patience, peace, joy, love. Those are some of the things that you and I should individually take and say, do I have self-control in my life? Is this a fruit that I'm bearing? But this is, just the, this is just the beginning. The Bible is full of fruit that we should be, be having, be wearing. And so ask, ask yourself this question. Do you have a love for souls? Do you love the lost? Do you pursue them? Are you, are you, are you desirous to see God's glory in your life where you work, where you study, where you go to school? Or are you afraid to speak His name? Are you zealous for God's honor? Are you striving to live a holy, obedient life? Do you care for the poor? For the widows and the orphans and those in jail? We are told to care for them. Caring for them is fruit that we should have in our lives. And just this morning, I'm standing here as we are worshiping. And I think how often I can stand there and externally have a sense of worship, but my heart would not be worshiping God. And there would be falsehood at that moment in my life. Because what I, what I show would not be what is true right there for me. Do you love God's Word? Those are fruit that we should wear, church. May the answer to this question be honestly answered before God. You see, God hates fake religion. He abhors external holiness. He wants true worshipers, men and women who are worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Matthew 3 and verse 10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of every tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. This will, let us be clear, be the end of every tree, every life that is examined by the purifier and is found to have only a form of godliness, external, with no internal fruit. And so I'm sure when Peter came to Jesus saying, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I think he came to Jesus shaking in his boots. 
probably realizing at that moment that the, that the tree that Jesus cursed was figuratively also of Him and that there were areas in His life that was fake. And so I think it's with a sense of anxiety that He was like, Rabbi, look, this tree you cursed, it really happened. It withered and it happened really quickly. And I think there was a sense of fear in Peter that day when he saw what happened. My friends, Jesus is a kind and a gracious God that did not leave them hanging. Seeing their sin, seeing that they were resembling this tree and that temple without showing them hope also in a faithful God. Jesus was saying to them, do not be overcome with fear. The next verse says what Jesus' response was, have faith in God. Peter comes there afraid, saying, Jesus, I'm like this tree. I'm, I don't have fruit. This thing withered. What's going to happen with me? And Jesus says to him, Peter, have faith in God. He continues to say, he, he says to him, Peter, what you need is you need to have an audacious faith before God. Because if you have an audacious faith, bold faith before God, He will do in your life what, is, what you are not able to do, Peter. He will do for you. In verse 23 it says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Mountains are obstacles. Ask anybody who's on day three of a five-day hike and you get to a big mountain. Or ask the first settlers who trekked from the east coast to the west coast what happened when they got to mountain ranges. And those people will tell you mountains are obstacles which makes progress difficult or impossible. And Jesus was saying to them, God will remove the mountains. He will remove the obstacles that exist for you to move from a tree that bears only leaves to a tree that bears fruit. And He's saying, if you only believe, it will be done for Him. He says, God will remove that for you, Peter. Have faith in God. If you truly trust Him with unwavering faith, He will do this for you. Notice what Jesus did not say. Peter, you better try harder. He did not say that. He said, have bold faith in God. Because God is the one who can help you. He is the only one 
who can help you overcome the obstacles to bearing the fruit that is necessary that Jesus is looking for in your life. Why will He do that? Why will God remove these obstacles for us? Church, He wants to do that because He wants us to bear fruit. Because when we bear fruit, He is glorified. And so God wants you to bear fruit and He wants me to bear fruit. Remember that God desires worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. He made us to worship Him like that. Unfortunately, this verse is often misused when when it is taken out of context, of course. Jesus was not saying that the measure of your faith will determine the outcome. That the measure of your faith, if you just have enough faith, this mountain, this obstacle will be thrown into the sea. This is not what Jesus was saying. We need to realize that God is a sovereign God and He is ultimately the one who determines over our lives. When we read in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 to 8, we see God's sovereignty displayed. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. In his book, The Sovereignty of God, author A.W. Pink says, to say that human destiny may may, may be changed by the will of man is to make the creature's will supreme. And that is virtually to dethrone God. Jesus calls for bold faith because it glorifies God, not because it creates an outcome. I'll say that again. Jesus asks for bold faith because bold faith glorifies God, not because bold faith has a certain outcome. We need to be clear of this. Our faith is not what makes super sovereignly things happen in our life in our lives god is who works sovereignly in our lives we have to have bold faith god will act sovereignly verse 24 is a continuation on this topic of having bold faith in God, when he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. We see an example of this in Abraham's life. And when we read about this in Romans 4, it says, He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Oh, that we may have the faith, the bold, audacious faith that Abram had, believing that God will establish in our lives what He promised. If we ask, if we believe, according to His will, He will make it happen. This verse, unfortunately, also can be taken out of context. And I say these things because I want to warn you, church. If this verse is taken out of context, it becomes something that the Bible has never intended it to be. And you'll hear this verse quoted as a blank check from heaven. Anything you ask will be done for you. All I have today is say, Jesus, I'd like a new insert. Or Jesus, can you please do for me insert. And effectively what we make him at that point is like a celestial slot machine where I insert prayer, and out jumps whatever I need. And can you see that if we read this verse in the context of redemptive history, that is not what it means. And we should guard, we should guard against the misuse of God's Word. We should guard against the misuse of God's Word. James, in the book of James, tells us not to ask with wrong motives. Jesus just said, whatever you ask will be done for you. You will have. James tells us not to ask with wrong motives. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, on your passions. So there obviously is a right asking and a wrong asking Asking to spend it on your own passions, James says, is a wrong way of asking. You see, prayer is really an act of worship. Prayer is an act of worship in as much it is a prostrating of the soul before a holy God. As, in as much as it is a calling to the King of the universe, as much as it is a recognizing of His sovereignty, His authority, and my submission to His will. Ask whatever you will like that, with that in view, and it will be yours, is what Jesus is saying. My friends, this is exactly what Jesus had against the temple who was supposed to be a place of prayer. But when he got there, all he found was external religion. And we know the end of that. So to sum up, Jesus was saying to his disciples, lay hold of my willingness to produce fruit in your lives. Lay hold of my willingness 
to produce fruit in your lives and to do away with obstacles that prevent you from bearing fruit in your lives. Whatever you need and whatever you need removed, I will do for you. Ask whatever you will and it will be yours. What hope, what hope He gave His disciples after them seeing the reality of what will happen to that tree. And as we move on to verse 25, we see Jesus is saying, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Oh, the sweet joy of being forgiven. What sweet joy that we are forgiven. The Bible teaches that we were born into sin and as as a result, we are sinners in need of saving. A saving work that we cannot do because our best goodness and our best efforts are like filthy rags before a holy God. But then the good news, the good news that God provided, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, blameless, holy, and perfect to die in our place on the cross so that we, on His account, may be forgiven. That just never gets old. We are forgiven because of Jesus and of, because of His sacrificial substitutionary death. And church, if we are willing to believe and if we are willing to place our trust in Him, and if we are willing to surrender our lives to Him, God will forgive. And surely there is no greater gift and there is no greater joy than to be forgiven by the God of the universe. And so in this, in this sentence, Jesus is showing His disciples a crucial fruit that should be present in their lives. He says, you are, you are familiar with forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the core of Christianity. We should be intimately desirous to also forgive. And so when we stand and when we want to ask God for whatever we will, we need to bear the fruit of forgiving others. Because we have been forgiven. It is fruit that should be in our lives. It is also fruit that we need God desperately to work in our lives. Because it is difficult to produce. Impossible to produce without Him. Church, when we hear a message like this, Jesus looked at the fig tree, fake external religion, and he cursed it. And we know it's applicable to us. But he told them, 
He's willing and able to help us produce fruit. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what do we do with this? This is actually a question we should ask every Sunday after the message. Every person should ask themselves that question. What am I going to do with what I heard today? Am I going to walk out here and as I speed off to Plaza Azteca, it just starts fizzling out of my mind and by Wednesday I have no clue which passage was even preached from. Or are we going to take God's word and allow it to mold us? Hendricks in in his book about living by the book, it's a book on um, hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. He says the Bible was not written to satisfy our curiosity. It was written to transform your life. The ultimate goal of Bible study then, which I will argue includes listening to a message like this, is not to do something to the Bible, but to allow the Bible to do something to us, to you and to me. And so this morning, because this is a serious passage that needs serious consideration, because we need the Bible to transform something in us because of this, I'm going to, tra- I'm going to project four questions on the board. This is you alone with God time. I want you to look at those questions, to read them, and to truthfully answer them. You cannot lie now. You're not going to tell the answer to anybody next to you. You are only going to tell this to God who already knows the answer. My hope is that when you look at this now, And when you look at this later this week, take a picture of it, write it down, do something, and later this week look at this again. My hope is that God will use this to transform our lives so that we can go from barren tree with leaves only to trees who bear abundant fruit for God for His glory. May He transform our lives through His Word. Amen.